0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. At our church, we're all about leading individuals to become faithful and effective followers of Jesus Christ. Hey, this week's message talks all about God's heart for the hurting. If you're in a difficult season, uh, maybe you feel broken, hurt, or you're struggling with something this week, we would love the opportunity to pray for you. To get prayer from somebody on our prayer team, visit our website, That's www.wordoflifeag.org, and right on that homepage, scroll down to the tile that says, Need Prayer. All right, let's get right into this week's message. What an incredible video. I hope it's okay that I say this, but the rumor is that uh, Kyle and actually be at the hospital right now as New Baby is on their way today as we speak. Now, if the rumors are incorrect or anything, I've got instant discredibility from here on out, Luke. We're in trouble. We don't do this at the beginning of every service or beginning of every message, but I thought it was appropriate today because we're going to dive into something that uh, is very sensitive. And so in the nature of the sensitivity that I want this service to have from here on out, I I would ask if we can stand and we're going to pray together. And uh, praying is not a spectator sport, it is something that we're all invited to participate. And I'm going to believe that God's going to move in in our lives this morning. So would you pray with me, Lord, as we're here, as we're ready to dive into your word. Lord, I pray that each and every person listening to this, whether it's here in the building, whether it's online, whether it's someone catching up with the message midweek or even weeks or months from now, Lord, I pray that your word would stick to us. What you would want us to get from this service would stick. Lord, I believe that there's healing that's going to come from today. Lord, I believe that there's a renewed hope that's going to come from today. And Lord, I pray that I would have the sensitivity to share your heart. And Lord, I pray that the words of Tom Wood would shrink to the background, but your word, your word is what would stick to people. So Lord, we humbly come to you. And we ask, Lord, that each and every heart, every each and every ear would be open to what you would share today. We pray this by faith in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. You can go ahead and grab a seat. So one thing that I'm aware of as pastor here at the church is that there's a number of people that are in an extremely difficult season right now. I also know just by the sheer numbers of people that are a part of our church, there are people that are in an incredibly difficult season right now that I have no idea about, that hasn't been shared to the church or hasn't been shared to me. But I know that there is an extremely large number of people right now here at the church that are going through some incredibly difficult seasons. And I felt that it was appropriate and it was right that we address this. I wanted to share something today that kind of hits on some of that, that perhaps speaks to some of that that you may be going through in your life. And there's a passage from the Bible that I hope is going to be helpful to us as we're walking through whatever challenge we may be facing. And if life is good for you right now, I'm real happy for you. But I hope that even something from today would grab you so that if a challenge comes, you already have a better perspective than if you haven't heard what we're about to share for you from the scriptures today. And one thing that I know is that we're in the middle of a crisis and in the middle of a challenge. The specifics and the size of it really don't matter too much. A crisis is a crisis. I was geeking out this week on YouTube, and I was looking at videos of the deepest point in the ocean anywhere on planet Earth, and it's somewhere called the Mariana Trench, and it's seven miles deep, and it's just off the coast of the Philippines in the Pacific Pacific Ocean. And seven miles deep, but you know what I know is that if I'm seven inches out of my depth in the ocean, it feels like I'm drowning. If I'm seven feet out of my depth in the ocean, it feels like I'm drowning. If I'm over the Mariana Trench and I am seven miles out of my depth, it feels like I'm drowning. There's no value in us comparing the size and the shapes and the specifics of the challenge that we're in, but really it's better that we just come and we just admit and we say, you know what, I'm in a horrible season, I hate it, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not working. Out. Whatever it may be, I'm here and I'm hurting. I'm hurting. And while we're on this side of eternity, Life will be unfair. There will be challenges. There will be days that are flat out unfair. People treat each other in the most unbelievable ways. There will be moments where we feel like we're miles out of our depth, and maybe we are. Maybe it's the consequences of choices that we've made, or someone else has made, or something else entirely. But in those moments, it's difficult or even impossible to understand where's God in this. And we have a staff meeting every Tuesday. And part of our staff meeting that we'll have is we'll have a time of worship together as a, as a staff here at the church, and we'll have a time of prayer. And as part of prayer time this week, we, we write on a whiteboard the different things that come to our mind, and some of them are specific for families in the church, some are more general, but this week there was just so many things, so many hurts that were represented as we prayed together as a staff, that a verse came to my mind, and this verse that I wanna share with you from the book of Jeremiah. And this verse came to me on Tuesday morning in our staff prayer meeting, and as I was getting ready for today, with all this in my head, I thought, you know what, that's the verse I'm going to share with the church, that we're going to dig into, in hopes that we're able to bring a sense of hope, bring a sense of restoration, some confidence and comfort that God is in the middle of our darkest days with us. The book of Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah, who was a prophet called to bring an unpopular message. For around 200 years, God's people were following other gods, ignoring the warnings of the prophets and righteous people, and Jeremiah was called to come and say, this is it, enough is enough, time's up. It's kind of like parents will know this well, you you get to the point where you say, if you do that again, you're going in time out. And then you go back again, okay, one more chance, if you do that again, and then you go back another time, okay, hold on, one more time, this is it, I'm really done now, and eventually. It really is the final warning, enough is enough, and whatever punishment is what happens. Hopefully I'm not trivializing the history, but for 200 years, God had been sending prophets to his people saying, okay, enough is enough, you have to turn back to me. You're abandoning me, you're rejecting me, enough is enough, this has to change, otherwise it's going to go bad. And Jeremiah had the unfortunate role of coming and announcing, enough is enough, it's going to go bad. And Jeremiah covers the, the book itself, covers a period of about 40 years and was written about the events that were leading up to, during, and immediately after, the most devastating moment in the Old Testament for God's people. Jeremiah was writing about the exile to Babylon for God's people. In 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was ransacked, succumbing to a siege by the Babylonian army. And the Babylonians were the world's superpower at that time, and Jerusalem was a part of that conquest. As part of the conquest, the Babylonians took 25% of the Jerusalem population back to Babylon. That ended up being about 75,000 people were taken to Babylon on foot 900 miles away. And the Babylonians, they intentionally took the key leaders and influencers of the community. Which means that they took all the people from Jerusalem that were the leaders in politics. They took the religious leaders. They took the military personnel. They took the business and cultural leaders. This is why, if you know the Bible, you'll know that Ezekiel was in Babylon. He was taken as a priest. Daniel, who was also taken to Babylon, it appears very clearly that he was a highly educated man. And the point was to have these 25% of the population, the most influential, the key movers and shakers in Jerusalem, the point was to re-educate them. So the Babylonians had their influence, and it was their culture that they occupied. It was so that they would be conquered people that would go back, and they in turn would influence society. The point was to take over Jerusalem. But what this means for the point in the passage where we're coming up to in Jeremiah, that Jerusalem at this time was left without any military protection, the wall of the city was down, the temple was destroyed, there was nowhere to worship and offer sacrifices, Businesses and commerce was devastated food supplies were obliterated and now people are trying to piece their lives back together There's no certainty around the future. There's death and suffering all around them misery and pain were commonplace This is the low point of the Old Testament the city of Jerusalem is completely devastated and in the middle of all this where there's no hope there is no indication of this turning around. Jeremiah, inspired by God, begins to share some hope and promise of restoration. God's heart is shown to his people during the worst moments imaginable. And as we get into this passage, I want us to keep in mind that God is not speaking to a bunch of optimistic people. God is speaking to people that have got very, very good reasons to feel downcast about everything. Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-eight. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose, to worship me forever, for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them, and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. But before we continue, I want to share a verse that will be familiar to many of you from Second Corinthians: "For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are all answered yes." Now the promises of God that Paul's describing in Corinthians is describing all the promises of God that you and I could find in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is the portion of the Bible. It takes up about three-quarters of your Bible. It It is all the events that take place prior to the birth of Jesus. And if we were to search that massive chunk of our Bible and look at every single promise, everything that God says about His people, what Paul is letting us know in the New Testament is that in Jesus those promises are answered. In Jesus, those promises are revealed. In Jesus, those promises become unraveled in our lives and we begin to experience those as believers. Every promise as Christ followers is answered yes. And that means that you and I, we can read this passage written thousands of years ago to people living thousands of miles away and we can take it personally. So let's read this again. But I want us to take it personally. Because in Jesus, this is being revealed in our lives. So let's take this personally. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose, to worship me forever, for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and I will never leave me. And I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. Now, if this wasn't written during times of trouble and heartache, it would be inspiring. But this is in the middle of the worst. There is nothing about the present circumstances that Jeremiah is writing to that suggests anything good is coming. And yet, God brings a message of hope. It's a reminder that God is working on a bigger picture. Some of the words that we just read are things like forever, everlasting. God is working on a bigger picture than we can imagine. He's also working in things that are beyond human ability. We just read about God giving people purpose and changing our hearts. And all of this helps us to see God's heart for the hurting. And that's the title for today's message. God's heart for the hurting. God's heart for the hurting. And after looking through this passage many times this week, there's a few ways we can see God's heart and how He's working in our lives during our toughest moments. There's a few helpful things that we can see. The first thing I want to point out is that God restores a heart of worship. God restores a heart of worship. And I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and they will never leave me. Now there is no possible way to read the verses we just read and conclude that when Jeremiah is writing about worship, when God is speaking about worship, he's just talking about singing some songs. There's no way we can read that verse and conclude that the power of worship, the meaning of worship, the, the, all the power behind it is all about singing a song. There's no way for us to be able to read that sensibly. The music and the singing is an expression of worship. But a surface reading of how important worship is in these verses, it cannot possibly be understood that it's just about singing some songs. This is God in the worst of the worst. He's not coming and saying, now go and sing some happy songs and that will change everything. That's not what's happening here. Clearly, it's, it's impossible to miss that. This is not just about singing some songs. To look at this a little more, I want to look at something else that Paul the Apostle wrote. This time to the church in Rome. And this is written around 600 years after Jeremiah was written. And this is part of a much longer passage where Paul the Apostle is outlining to the church the need of a Savior, which, of course, is Jesus. But in Romans 1.25, they, talking about people who've abandoned their relationship with God, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. And again, we can see that this notion of worship cannot just be about singing some songs and throughout human history, people have given their loyalty, their allegiance, their devotion, their commitment to idols. And Paul is addressing the, the same importance of restoring a heart of worship. And today, the idols that take God's place might look different. It might not be statues in an ancient pagan temple, but our worship gets distorted. Our loyalty, our focus, our commitment gets steered away from God, especially When life is devastating, and with all the compassion in the world, Jesus invites the hurting and the broken to reorientate their lives, to redeem worship in the hearts of people, not only in spite of suffering, but to help heal the suffering. The promise from God is to the hurting is restoring a heart of worship, that by living in devotion to Him, something happens in the middle of pain. As we worship, not just singing a song, but a deep, heartfelt commitment, devotion that is through worship that we find our priorities in Him, that our focus is on Him, that we center our lives around Him. Our sense of value begins to change as we worship. That's right. The action of worship, it, it calibrates our hearts. It resets our hearts. Worship evaluates, elevates God above everything else. It's a good habit that when we pray, we begin by elevating God. That's why Jesus, when he's teaching people how to pray in what we've come to be known as the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven. Starting off praying, but before I start getting to what I need, before I start bringing my requests, before I start sharing the hurts of my heart, I'm going to elevate God in my life. God, you are majestic. You are high. You are lifted up. There is none like you. You and you alone are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And here's my mass. Ele- it's a great habit in prayer. Elevate God first. Lift Him up. Recognize His goodness. Recognize His power. Recognize His majesty. Recognize His uniqueness. Recognize His sovereignty. Amen. This may well be expressed through singing or worship. But the moment we shrink worship to singing songs about Jesus, we're forgetting the internal transformation that happens. Worship sets things in the right order. It's something that amazes me. Whenever I I go to visit youth ministries, I've been to youth conferences before, and it breaks my heart. I'll stand at the back of the room, and there's hundreds of students that are there, these teenagers, and their life is nuts. And they've created an atmosphere, and they've created a space where they can encounter the creator of the universe, and the students stand there waiting for it to finish. It drives me nuts. It's like, guys, elevate God above all the mess you're going through. Maybe you'll find some answers. Maybe you'll find some heart transformation. Maybe your perspective will change. Maybe your entire thought process will change. Maybe your sense of value and worth will change as you lift him up. It's not, my friends, it is not just about singing through some songs. But walking through a difficult time with God, with this sense of worship being restored in our hearts, it strengthens our faith. Amen. I will give them one heart. I will put a desire in their heart, is what Jeremiah said. Another verse from Thessalonians, another verse from the New Testament. May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. And the New Testament Greek word for endurance is hippomone. And it's translated into a number of other English words in the New Testament. It doesn't just translate to endurance. It also translates into perseverance and patience and steadfastness. In short, worship, true worship, orientating ourselves around Jesus does something in our hearts and souls. It gives us the strength to keep going. What happens is you find the strength to endure, to persevere, just to make it through another day. It is not simply singing. It's not shallow, but it is a deep, heartfelt commitment. And from that, true change happens. Second thing we read from Jeremiah. God promises hope in hopelessness. God promises hope in hopelessness. It's vital to remember that this passage was written for people who are going through the very worst moments of their lives... As the siege of Jerusalem was coming, God told Jeremiah to buy a field. In the beginning of chapter 2, we read towards the end of chapter 32, but in the beginning of chapter 32, we read about Jeremiah buying this field. And it goes into some details around the transaction. But Jeremiah knows that the city is going to fall. And here's God saying, go buy a field. So Jeremiah has some questions about this. Verse 24, see how the siege ramps have been built against the city walls. Through war, famine, and disease, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who will conquer it. Everything has happened just as you said. And yet, O sovereign Lord, you have told me to buy the field, paying good money for it before these witnesses, even though the city will soon be handed over to the Babylonians. Essentially, why am I doing this? Why am I buying this field? Why am I thinking about the future? Why should I have any hope or optimism or anticipation? Why should I plan for anything good to happen at all? In the next verse, the Lord speaks. Verse 26. Then this message came to Jeremiah from the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? This then begins a longer passage that contains the verses that we've been looking at closely today. But God begins talking about a hope that has no logical basis to it. The verses we read, we see that God is planning good things. To worship me forever for their own good. I will never stop doing good for them. I will find joy doing good for them. And in the middle of a whole lot of bad, we hear that God's planning good things. There are times in life when it's very easy to believe this. And then there are other times. And this is written in a time where it was impossible to imagine anything good. There is zero reason for hope. There is no logical basis for anyone to have a single word of hope on their lips. This is where God says this. There's a a British academic. He's an Old Testament um, professor. He's one of those academics that writes Bible commentaries. I read one of the books that he wrote um, on Jeremiah this past week, and there was a paragraph that I thought was helpful to share. And he's British, so you know you can trust this. And if you want to make fun of the way I say heart, that's okay with me. But there are those who would be reading these words in the scroll of Jeremiah in the throes of exile. Their memories were seared by the fire fires that finally consumed Jerusalem and the famine, sword, and plague that carried off so many of their loved ones. For some of them, it must have seemed unthinkable that God could restore their fortunes, that the future could conceivably contain a return of the people, a rebuilding of the city and temple. Their past and present seemed to foreclose any possible future with God, except that God was not bound by possibilities emerging from the past. Nothing was too hard for him, including the creation of a new future generated from his own sovereign and redemptive will. They, talking about the exiles, have endured war, amputated hopes, splintered families, and the travail of a shattered world. Now, by the power of the word, God empowers these broken and shipwrecked people to imagine a future where none seemed possible. The circumstances that you're facing right now, they're going to be very different from what the Jewish people in exile were experiencing. But as we've already discussed, seven inches out of your depth feels just like seven miles. And there's a promise of hope. Jeremiah continues, "And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land for the good." of all their descendants. The word replanting in those passages, those verses, stood out to me as a deeply meaningful image. The present might seem like we've been uprooted, ripped out, that the good times are done. But the perspective here, in God's heart for the hurting, is this is not the end. A replanting is coming. And if you and I were to share sad stories, maybe mine would be worse than yours. Maybe yours would be wildly more devastating. But what's true for all of us is that God lifts our eyes to see more. God lifts our eyes to see more. God's working on a bigger picture than we are. He has an eternal viewpoint. He's not consumed with the troubles of today, but he's thinking beyond. To the everlasting covenant and promises he's making. To the replanting that he's planning. To the future generations that he has in mind. And I don't want to be a gloomy church, but I also don't want to be satisfied with empty feel-good optimism. That's right. People saying, cheer up, it could be worse, doesn't help anybody. That's right. Us denying that there's a problem doesn't help anybody. But God lifting our eyes to see a glimpse of the bigger scale that He's working on. God reminding us that He's working with future generations in mind, that He's planning a replanting that starts to bring a perspective we wouldn't get on our own. And as a church, we're not going to settle for shallow, feel-good, self-help stuff. But when life is tough and even impossible, we're going to pray and believe. We're going to support and care for each other. We're going to carry some weight for each other until we can get to a new season. We're going to anticipate breakthroughs and answers to prayer. Maybe a new season means walking with a limp, and we're going to help each other figure out what life with a limp feels like. Turning people, finding the strength to keep going, even though they've got really, really good reasons to give up. Never forgetting that God lifts our eyes to see a bigger perspective. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield for me. My glory on the one who lifts my head. Unto you I lift up my eyes. O oh, you, dwell in the heavens. He lifts our eyes and it grows a perspective. He's working on a larger canvas and he has the future in mind. The passage we read opens with verse 28 They will be my people and I will be their God. And this theme runs throughout the Bible that they will be my people and I will be their God. All the way back in Genesis, when God first starts initiating this covenant with Abraham in chapter 17. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me, God, and you, Abraham, and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then you go all the way to the end in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. What does it mean for God to be our God and us to be his people? It means our trust and our confidence is in him. It means we honor him in all things, that we're committed to him, that he's our source of wisdom, that we trust him with our understanding of morality and ethics, that he is our provider. In the Old Testament, this is possible because of the agreement, that covenant between God and the Israelites. And now, after the resurrection, it's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross for all people everywhere who put their faith in him, to be able to say with confidence that I am a child of God. He is God, and I am his people. And this phrasing, they will be my people, and I will be their God, is written three times in the book of Jeremiah. And it always talks about heart transformation. Jeremiah 24, verse three. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, some very good and some very bad, too rotten to eat. Then the Lord gave me this message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the good figs represent the exiles I sent from Judah to the land of the Babylonians. I will watch over and care for them, and I will bring them back again. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me wholeheartedly. Chapter 31 This is a new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then the passage we just read They will be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart. That heart transformation. One purpose, to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. In the middle of pain, God is working in our hearts when we walk out the other side we find our faith is stronger our faith in God is deeper not because we got everything we wanted when we wanted it but because we made it through the very worst moments in life we become more like the people he's created us to be, his heart becoming our heart, his perspective becoming our perspective a straightforward honest reading of the Bible shows us that trials tragedy, sorrows are inevitable hopefully From this passage, we can see God's heart for the hurting, to restore a heart of worship, to bring hope to hopelessness, and that God lifts our eyes to see more. And I guess the takeaway applicable thought for today is simply that when you're in the middle of life's worst moments, remind yourself about God's heart for the hurting. Read a passage like this, talk to somebody, or remind yourself God's heart for the hurting. A number of years ago in a different state when I was youth pastoring, there was a couple of young kids in the youth ministry, a brother and sister, and they were nice kids, and their parents didn't have any connection to the church, but they would come and hang out, and they were awesome. We got a call one day, and the night before, mom and dad had got blind drunk, and things had got out of hand, and dad ended up very seriously, physically assaulting mom. So I got the call to go to the house and there's these two teens that are terrified, just visibly. Like I, I, Even now, the image in my mind of this young girl shaking, she's maybe 14, 15, just shaking with just terror of what she'd seen the night before. The brother not quite knowing how to process what he'd seen. Mom, just all different kinds of emotions because of what had happened the night before. These three people, precious people, hurting through no fault of their own. And then anything nothing wrong with the hurt. I were sitting there just trying to show them God's heart for the hurting. And as I left to go home, I got a call from the sheriff's department. And one of the deputies, a guy I knew, just, Tom, we got a guy in the cell. He wants to speak to you. And I go in, and there's dad, sobered up, having to realize the reality of what he's done. He was completely at fault. I have no desire to defend what he did at all. There were some other things that go with this story, some other legal complications that meant that this arrest meant that a whole lot of things were catching up with him. And he sat in that jail cell looking at me. I'm in there with him. And he knew he'd ruined his life. And he was hurting. Entirely his fault. He had no one else to blame. There were no fingers to point at anybody. And he's hurting. I had just got done meeting with mom and the kids. And now I'm with this guy trying to show him the heart of God towards the hurting. I want to invite the prayer team to come down. And that includes if there are any elders that are able to come down, if there are any ministry directors that are able to come down, if there are any prayer team members that are on a week off, but they're able to come down just to help pray. We're gonna pray in just a moment. We're gonna invite everybody to come down. The worship team are gonna play behind us and lead us in worship. If you're hurting for any reason, whether it's entirely your fault, and there's no one else to blame, and you are hurting because of the consequences of your actions and your choices, or whether it is completely unfair that you're in this situation right now, it doesn't matter. You're hurting. And I want you to feel God's heart towards the hurting today. So I'm gonna pray, worship team are gonna play, they're gonna lead us. If you're hurting for any reason, any size, anything please don't walk home without coming and hearing from the prayer team but we're gonna worship and we're gonna close service in a little bit but I want to make sure that we have time for this so would you stand with me Lord as people come down here ready to receive prayer I believe by faith the Lord that we are gonna have hurts that are gonna be healed today people are gonna hear and they're gonna feel and they're gonna believe your heart towards them Lord that you are restoring a heart of worship Lord, that you're bringing hope to hopelessness. Lord, that you're going to lift eyes so that we can see more. Lord, I believe that people are going to leave here today with a renewed sense of faith, a renewed sense of hope. In Jesus' incredible name, amen, amen. Come on, everybody, let's worship and let's pray.